All right, now the way we're going to do this today, a little bit different than last time because Jason wasn't with us last time, we're going to start by asking Jason all the questions that you had us answer last time, and then if there's time, the rest of us will jump in on other things, okay? So Jason, no, that's, that would not be kind. I'm no. ready. He's ready. ready to go. He's ready to go. I'm going to say you can find those answers on the recording on the <laughs> There you go. <laughs> he, he's had two weeks to prepare now. That's true. So uh, a couple things to remind you. You guys will be, have, of course, the opportunity to ask questions out loud, and that's fine. If you want to ask a question, you raise your hand. Ben will actually give up his microphone for a moment, and Owen will bring it to you so we can get your voice on the recording. Uh, also, if you don't want to ask it out loud, but you would like a question to be asked, you are welcome to text text any of these three guys. I'm not going to check my phone, but you could text Jason, Ben, or Anthony, and they would be happy to have your question and read it and not identify you. It could be, honestly, that you have a serious question that you don't want your name associated with among the church. Uh, And if you do, I want you to know you're welcome to ask it. Just text it to the guys and they can read it to us, okay? Uh, with that said, I want to kick us off like this. I want to ask the guys myself, tell me something that you are reading or studying or working through that is feeding your soul. So Anthony, I'm going to start with you because you're down at the end there. Tell me something you're, you're looking at in your life right now that is encouraging your soul. I think the, the, the biggest thing that I've been working through personally is, um, you guys all know that the elders have been preaching through the book of Colossians. So reading that um, a lot, um, especially because I'm, I'm up next, so doing a lot of reading and studying, which is, which is good. It's, it's been a blessing, that book, uh, Book of Colossians, has been really good. Um, also, as well, reading the new exposition of the 1689 by Rob Ventura. Um, it's a series of lectures that go over each chapter of the 1689, but that's, it's been really good, too. Try to read the chapter um, for the week that we'll be, we'll be talking about, about the 1689. But that's, that's been a real, real blessing, for sure, as well. Yeah, that's encouraging stuff. All right. Jason? Uh, Noah and I have, for the last, what, some two-plus years, been working through Grudem Systematic Theology together, um, and that's been a wonderful time spent each morning, four to five days a week, reading through and discussing that. So that's been great. Almost there. Within 100 pages of finishing that That's book. good. So they're about to get to the eschatology chapters. Ooh, that sounds fun. We're not doing eschatology again today. That was last time. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, for me, I would say um, I just started a reread of Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, and uh, that has been really encouraging. The first time I read through it, I got through it, but I can't say I was like, oh my gosh, I'm encouraged. But something made me think about taking a look at that again, and just the um, the concepts that are there, especially of um, the gospel being more connected to the person of Christ than to externals, I think is a big deal. So, and, and the way that would make sense to you guys if, if, if you um, think about it, a lot of times when we present the gospel, we're very forensic. We talk about if you believe, you get heaven, you get forgiveness. And sometimes if we're not careful, we will say if you believe, you get these things. And we actually forget that Jesus is not the means to an end but Jesus is the end of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is that if you want Jesus, if you want God, he will have a relationship with you. Heaven is both the place and the, the, the reality of being in relationship with God. Uh, it's not that you, yeah, if you want heaven, you've got to put up with God. 
that is pagan. Uh, the whole, yeah, and, and this book just gave me a good reminder of the fact that if I want to talk about the gospel, I need to talk a lot about Jesus. So that's been encouraging to my soul. Ben, what about you? Well, I'm not as fancy as y'all, but uh, I've been doing still the, the reading plan that we should all be doing. And so I just finished Galatians. And it was just encouraging to see how much Paul loved the church and how much he labored through. And then also the Colossian that we keep reading through. Every time one of these guys preach, I'll go back and read it from beginning all the way up to that point so it can have the whole thing in context. And again, you still see more of Paul laboring and the work that he puts in the church. And it's, 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 good, it's good for me seeing you know, the love of the church that he has and how we should love the church in that way. That's but awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, before we go on, I also want to correct uh, Jason's theology a little bit. Uh, on Sunday, I believe that Jason Likowitz referred to these three men as the substitute teachers. <laughs> And I know he's being sweet and humble, but let me tell you guys something. They're not. These are your elders. And they're just as elder as I'm elder. And don't think of them otherwise. So don't let them do that. And you guys whack Jason next time he does that. Okay. So with that said, let's talk about, let's talk about church. I'm going to go ahead and throw us into the first question. And then we can kind of bounce around and see where we go to. You guys will have the questions and I'll let you guys ask some. But the, one of the questions we got last time that we didn't get a chance to get into was... We talked about the regulative principle of worship, which means uh, that we only do as a church in worship the things that the Lord has commanded. We don't add in things. I believe last time we suggested that that's how we keep Kay from doing interpretive dance in our church <laughs> is, is to ha- go by the regulative principle. Uh, and <laughs> okay. But we got asked, what is commanded of the church what are we supposed to do in worship what what is a positive command of the regulative principle so you guys any of you want to jump in i would say just tell me one or two and we'll let the we'll kind of fill them in as we go i'll start um the preaching of the word is 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 one very good there's biblical command for that obviously right preach the word in first second timothy chapter four the keeping of the ordinances okay and what do those mean that would be baptism for believers, and uh-huh. that would be participating in the Lord's Supper for believers as well on a regular basis. Awesome. Very good. I was just going to go with the same thing. I mean, because today we get to do that. We get to participate in the Lord's Supper, and baptism's huge. So, yeah. That's good. Uh, I think we could say very easily the Bible's commanded us to pray. So prayer as a church, as a congregation, is part of the commanded acts of worship. Um, somebody else want to add one? What you guys? Yeah, there's uh, the reading of the word. He's also commanded. Right. Give yourself scripture. to the public reading of scripture. That's why we have men in our church reading scripture every Sunday. There's also one that I think too often people like to leave out when we talk specifically about the regular principle of worship. That's also the response of um, what is being read or, or preached as well. There's a responding to to the word. Good. As well. Good. Uh, singing. Uh, Praising the Lord. Now, by the way, here's a, here's a nifty trick question. To whom do you sing in worship? I heard Jesus. Anybody want to answer me? Anybody else but Jesus when you sing? To one another. To one another. In Colossians 3, we have the command that we are to teach one another, one another singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So... 
that is um, something we're commanded. If you want to know what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are, psalms are in the Bible. Hymns are in a hymnal and spiritual songs we have to print in a worship guide or project on the wall. That's <laughs> biblical definitions of those. Okay, that could have been, that's in the message. Um, but it, so we're, we are commanded to sing. And, and one of the reasons that we try to do music the way that we do is we want your voices to be heard by one another because you are teaching one another biblical doctrine as you sing truth. So it's good. Anybody else, is there anything else in the regulative principle that I'm, that I'm missing that you guys would say we, we haven't thought of yet for well, worship service? Uh, tr- Pastor, since we're on the, the topic of just worship in, in general, could uh-huh. you maybe explain um, how or why you go about choosing the specific songs for each song? Okay. I, I know you have a method, and we, right. we know that, but I don't know if everyone else does. Okay, so the, the question was, how do, we, how do I choose the songs? I, and if you guys don't know, I do the, I do the song picking. Um, I would make these guys do it, but they don't want to. So that's one of the ways we do it. Jason, Jason would have, we would just sing "It Is Well" every Sunday four times if it's Jason picking. So it's a fine song; we all love it. Uh, we can mix an amazing grace. Okay, amazing grace could be in there too. So, a couple things that we do. Number one, I have a pow, a passionate commitment that I don't want someone who comes to our church from outside to be in our church a whole service long and not have a song that is pretty much well-known to Christians everywhere. Uh, I've been to too many churches where I didn't know one song that we sang the entire service, and that is not comfortable or welcoming. And I think we, we, we want to be a church where things that are familiar to Christians all over the world throughout the ages are sung. Uh, so that means classic hymns most of the time. That's where you're going to get, and it is well, you're going to get an uh, Amazing Grace. Um, you're going to get... Uh, and all creatures of our God and King, or something of that nature. We try to bring some new things in because we also want to be not, we're not going to pretend that there's one time period in history that is the only good musical time period, but our modern songs are more like hymns than they are modern, you know, rock music and things of that nature. Uh, that's not because I'm opposed to music with the beat, it's because you guys don't have rhythm. Yeah, no, I'm not. I, I believe me. I know. I love you. You just don't have rhythm. So uh, there, um, I sent Andrew a particular video of a church uh, for their Easter service doing a Christian lyric version of Uptown Funk, and he uh, he did not prepare it. I don't I I, I don't know why because I thought that 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 is not happening. So no, we we try we try to sing things that are again biblically faithful beautiful to the best of our ability um and we choose i also try to choose making sure that we are rotating through our song list so i will look at songs we haven't sung in a while first so we typically have more than three months between times that songs are repeated sometimes it's even longer than that but i want to make sure that we're not singing the same thing every week so we have a pretty good rotation right now so that's how we do it one other thing i thought of travis too is Mm -hmm. the uh the encouraging of one another, building one another up in, in love as yeah. part of our service. With the fellowship. With and our fellowship yeah. each week. That's, that's there. So good. So what wouldn't be included in the regular principle? I mean, I guess we could say uh, when you think about churches that have added things. Like, again, last time I talked about doing, you know, uh, latte art in the corner and calling it worship. I, I ain't mad if you do latte art. That's fine. But it's not a commanded practice in, in Christian worship. Um, 
I would say that, you know, we, we could probably look at other things that we don't do that maybe some churches do. We don't do dramas. Like, we don't have a drama team doing sketches, skits every week. Um, not because I think it's sinful for people to do drama. I just don't think that it's commanded in Scripture, so I don't think it's necessary for us to do, and we don't, we don't do it. So those are examples of how the regulative principle in some wise governs us. Every church has, will handle it maybe more strictly or less strictly, but that's us. So, well, you guys want to throw in a question or we can see if anybody on the floor has a question? I figured we could start with this one. Um, okay. They write, I would love a biblical response for friends who believe in modern philosophy, either what they believe is given to themselves as special messages or the... The QAnon craziness that so many are spreading and that this is influencing our president. I almost said to these folks, by the way, that we have an elder Q&A, and that sounds so much like an elder QAnon, but uh, that's not who we are. What do you guys want to say about modern philosophy? It's modern. <laughs> it's where, where, modern. where do we begin? <laughs> you know, when we, when we uh, stand up, or when we, we come out here and we read the 1689, and I, I always talk about how, you know, this isn't the inspired word of God, but it's written by men much smarter than us. I'm kind of making a, a dig at the heart of what is modern for us. When I think modern, I think like modern art. How far has modern art fallen? Or when I think about um, modern anything, whether it be politics, whether it be modernizing our religion or our culture, there's a lot of wisdom in what came before. There's a lot of wisdom by other men in older times, and <laughs> I would just say no, modern is bad. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to sum it up. I think a lot of times modern psychology, philosophy runs opposite what scripture tells us. Yeah. And anytime you see that, that's where it's time to stop. There can be something said for going to someone if you need assistance in counseling somewhere and you, you need somebody who has some insight into whatever your challenges may be. But as soon as what they're teaching you goes contrary to Scripture, it's time to disassociate from those folks right away. Okay. So what do you guys say about the My Pillow guy prophesying things about presidential elections? If they don't come true, <laughs> I think we need to gather some stones. <laughs> There is something about modern prophecy in that, in that question. And um, if you have somebody telling you, God has told me, your first move should be very careful if what comes out of their mouth next isn't a quote of scripture. I'm not saying God may not influence us to some point, but we do not have need of predictive prophecy at present. So if you hear somebody promising that they've heard from God and there's some predictive prophecy, I would, I would watch out for that. No, and that's on, uh, you know, Jason just preached on Colossians 2. That's, that's what Paul warned the Colossae church against was yeah. some of these, um, that time, modern philosophies that are, arose in and around the, the church. And, and Paul reminds him, is, you know, he tells him in, in Christ is hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's, he's telling the Colossae church at that time to look towards Christ for these philosophical claims or yeah. whatever. So, I mean, Paul... Paul warned them, and he warns us today as well um, regarding really the same things. There's nothing new under the sun. So That's good. I want to throw one more out, one more, one more question that's in the same vein. What does the Bible say about professing Christians using astrology, pagan rituals, etc., for entertainment purposes? Jesse? 
<laughs> ben? Well, as you can tell, I'm reading these questions because uh, I know it's something that is, you know, stewing on her. God hates fortune telling. God hates pagan uh, attempts to have control over the, the world or to manipulate the spiritual by rituals and, and pagan actions. And philosophy or uh, fortune telling and things of that nature are are things that God just always 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 speaks against in the word so I wouldn't play with it do we have modern astrology since we're talking about things modernizing what would we think is modern astrology for us today to avoid yoga the new age movement all their weird practices and rituals and yoga, yoga is Hindu evangelism. I'm not kidding. I, I'm not kidding. If, if you look into the practice and where it came from, it most certainly is. That's what it came from. Yeah. Nothing wrong with stretching, but yeah. Oh. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, gentlemen, if you thought that things like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram were sort of in that vein. You yes. know, um, I don't think necessarily of Myers-Briggs because Myers-Briggs is this, is this attempt to just play personality profiles. I've never, I don't know their source, so I don't know. I know the source of Enneagram is, however, very secularistic or, again, pagan spiritualism uh, in the Enneagram. And I would, not, I would not want to participate in it, and I certainly would not rely on it. I'm 100%, yeah. The anagram is absolutely a modern paganism. Uh, I would be wary of anything that plays off personality. I think it's the same thing. I would put those both in the same vein as a horoscope. You know, opening up your Sunday funny or Sunday paper and reading your daily horoscope. It's the same thing when you go, well, I need to know my personality typing or how I think so that way I can make decisions based off that. Right. Jason, how do you feel about fortune cookies? <laughs> some are good. Some are not so good. <laughs> They can be a little burned sometimes. Those okay. aren't any good. Okay. But let me, let me just reinforce it's something I talked about last week, guys. When you see these things and, and you, you know, there are hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you're just, you know, the, the Lord's not letting you be comfortable with it. Don't make yourself comfortable with it. Flee from it. Get away from it, right? If, if you have questions about whether or not it's something that you feel is appropriate or if it's sinful, err on the side of getting away from it, right? Yeah. Don't play with sin. Because when you play with it, you can justify it. When you justify it, you'll fall into it, and it'll become harder and harder to get out. So do we believe these things are sinful? Yes. If there's one of those that you're like, well, I'm just not really sure, then it's time to get away from it. And again, almost all of them are based on, let me come up with a some form of almost mystical secret knowledge to unpack the mysteries of the universe so that I can have an advantage over others around me. The Bible never acts like that. And by the way, there are some people that that's the way they treat their, quote, Christian spirituality because they look for God to give them secret tips and tricks as to which car to buy, which house to buy, which job to take in such a way that it looks very, very similar to a guy walking around with a divining rod looking for oil. And we want to be very careful. Great question. 
And Gatlin, I'm sorry, if, if you want to do yoga, buddy, just... Um... Do Pilates. <laughs> Okay. So, so the question was, are, are the movements themselves dangerous, or is there a spiritual ethos behind it? Uh, what do you guys want to say? I mean, again, so some of those stretches are just stretches, as far as I can tell. Well, some of those stretches, though, the way I see it, are almost a humiliating stretch before a pagan god. What, like, you, you, you can name a lot of these stretches, and they're salutations to the sun, or whatever it may be, that they're rooted in something that is not appropriate. Right. We're not opposed to kinesiology, right? You know, the, the study of movement and things of that nature. But I think if, you, if there's anything attached to it, uh, I'd be very careful with it. Also, again, if you really go into some of the original stuff of yoga, there's also some interesting odd sexuality issues involved in some of the yoga poses and intents if you get further into the practices. So be careful uh, for sure. If someone says, I'm only stretching, again, I'm not going to tell you you can't stretch. You've got to figure out how you can stretch well, but you need to be wise before the Lord that you're not bringing to yourself philosophies and thinkings that are anti-biblical. And, and, the, and the, the purpose of, of yoga, go to a yoga class, it's, it's this idea of, of emptying oneself, right? And, and like Ben said, you, you're doing these movements in a sense of humility and, and to like empty yourself, to fill yourself up with some mystical knowledge. And that's, I mean, the Bible, is, that's, it warns us against doing things like that so I think it's like I said the movements themselves aren't aren't wrong but I think there are movements that you ought to be weary of because it is a a, a bowing down to a, a pagan a pagan god so there's a lot of movements I don't do and, I'll tell you that right now <laughs> and I can't do them either so I'm not yeah that's a, and yeah. no one's going to a, a yoga they may go with the intent of hey you know I'm just going to do these stretches but within the class itself like you had just mentioned Anthony they, they talk about things like okay now we're going to empty our mind and relax and we're going to there's undertones to its spirituality. Yeah, if, if you're cleansing your aura, be very concerned. And we um, should know we never empty our mind. That's, that's not how we find relaxation. All right? you're, you're just opening yourself up to absolute trash at that point. Which here with the difference of, of like, what is meditation, right? Because you guys hear the term meditation used a lot. Christian meditation ha- is never self-hypnosis. I actually had a professor once in seminary who described his quiet time and his, his form of meditation. And it was the creepiest thing I've ever heard because he would like focus on one or two words of a verse and put himself in a semi-hypnotic state waiting for God to speak to him. Don't do that. Instead, use the mind God's given you to study the word faithfully and apply it well. Meditation is deep thinking, not mind emptying. And I don't think you can separate the two. Uh, yoga and meditation, or at least their style. Not actual med- yoga, for sure. Meditation. Again, you can, stre- you can stretch with that. You can exercise with stretching. But the moment the, any philosophy comes in there, yes, the moment that it looks like you are doing a thing that would be worshipful towards something else, I'd be, you know, I'd be very cautious. All right, let's move on. We'll yoga all day long. What you got? All right. Has anybody texted you guys yet, by the I, way? I haven't gotten a text. No, okay. not yet. And if you guys have a question that you want to jump in with, I'm just going to keep going down the list here. Uh, if God created man and woman and knows all that is going to happen, why would he allow... Oh, I, think, I feel like we asked this question. We yeah, we did that one last time. Let me, why let do me, we allow evil? Yeah, let me go through the list here. All right. Listen well, to the recording. I'm going to go up to the top one. of the list here. Uh, cause, cause, oh, I, here. Here's another one. Stop me if we've already read it. Is there a rule we should apply to the text to determine if it applies or is a promise 
to, uh, to or for us today. Example, Jeremiah 29.11 and Second Chronicles 7.14. Okay. So the question really rolls down to, should a Christian be using, should, be, you know, should we be applying, uh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Can we apply that verse to us, or does it only apply to the Old Covenant community to whom the prophecy was given? Is there a rule for that? How do you guys, how do you guys deal with it whenever you run across a passage like that? Personally, I try to keep those promises in context. Uh-huh. Um, they were written to a people as a result of following the, Lord, the will of the Lord and, and, and being obedient. Um, I hesitate claiming those for individuals because it almost sounds like you can cause God to do something if you just behave a certain way. And right. so I always caution people about, I mean, r- remind people, God may do this for you. But there's no promise because he says it in Jeremiah 29, 11, that it's applying to you and that this is exactly what's going to happen to you. And what you may interpret as uh, prospering and not harming may be entirely different. Because if you take that to a, if you think about God has given us, he has prospered us with our salvation. Everything else is either icing on, on the cake or maybe it's a challenge. But everything that we do is to the glory of God. So it may be something that you look at and say, man, this is miserable. I can't believe I'm having to deal with this. But it may be prospering you because down the road, the Lord's using that to grow you. So I'm always cautioning people about looking at their current circumstances to say, see, Scripture says I should be prospering here and I'm not. So that's not right. Okay, good, good. Uh, I would add some, again, the question has to do also with looking for a rule. So let's start here. When you read a text, once you know what the words mean, and what the context around the text is, ask yourself, what did the words mean? Or, or what, the, the person who wrote the words or spoke the words, what did that person intend for their original hearers to understand? So I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, Jeremiah 29, was God speaking to Judah, going to captivity saying, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to prosper you. I'm not harming you, even though you're going through a season of judgment. In Second Chronicles 7:14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and hear my voice and turn from their ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. That was written during the debt, that was spoken, you know, God toward the people at the dedication of the, te- of the temple, Solomon's era. And the whole point was to tell Israel, if you, Israel, are being judged by me, but you humble yourself and repent, God will be faithful to restore you. So you want to ask first, what did it mean to the people who received it? What, did it, what was intended by the author to the people they, they wrote it to? From that, you can ask yourself, is there something we can learn to be a truth, a, a universal truth, about, a, a, an absolute truth about God? or a universal applicable principle to carry across. So for example, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That teaches us something about God. It teaches us something about how God treats those who genuinely belong to him. He doesn't lose them. He's good. He loves his people. Second Chronicles talks about the fact that people who turn from sin, um, turning from sin is better than not. 
you know, and God is good to be. Those principles apply across the board. And so what we want to do is find out what did the text mean in context to the people it was, it was given to, and then bring, if there is a universal grander application, or if there's a reason that it's picked up somewhere else to be applied, then we can make the application go further. So. Okay, hold on. You, you, can't, you can't ask it too far, so far back. You're getting a microphone, and you will take it. We're recording, so we yeah. Yeah, I have a, a friend of mine um, who's a Christian, and she said that that verse you just said, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 7, 14, 14 mm-hmm. was for Christians, for America. And Christians are so sinful, and we love our sins so much that once we repent, God will heal America. And I said, that is not true. You're taking it out of context. She got very upset. Yeah. What would your response be? To her. Uh, (laughs) He didn't say that in the microphone. Did you notice that? Jason just said, get over it, Vanessa. Get over it. If you didn't hear it, that's what he... um, I think think what we want to say is, dear friend, let's talk about how we interpret Scripture. And let's be faithful and consistent with what we see in Scripture. I would even ask, do you have any rules by which you choose what applies to us and what doesn't? See, see how, how your friend would answer the question. But ultimately, the answer is no. Faithful, historically, if we study the, the, the art and science of interpreting the Bible, hermeneutics, then we're going to learn that there are principles we have to abide by if we're going to rightly apply Scripture. And... We don't have the right to make a verse mean something that its author did not intend it to mean. With that said, is there a universal principle? If, if America, if, if the people of this nation, if, if there was a massive move of people toward Christ, or even if the nation repented of tons of the evils that are currently part of our nation, is it likely that God would bless our nation? Sure. I, I, think, I think he probably would. But the fact is that verse was written in a moment, to a particular people. And I don't know that you can, you know, eventually you're going to get to a, yes it is, no it isn't, yes it is, no it isn't, argument that you can't do much about, and you just have to say, we're going to agree that we're, we're, we're interpreting the Bible differently. But I would urge you to learn more about how to faithfully interpret the Bible. So. How many of you guys know the word hermen- hermeneutics? Exactly. <laughs> Here's what's fun. Hermeneutics comes from the Greek word Hermes, the messenger of the Greek, mes- the Greek messenger God. So, just kind of fun. I, I have a question concerning our country. Yes. I've had people pray that God would bless our country. Is that right, since our country is so immoral now? And I, my personal feeling is that we're under judgment now. Mm-hmm. So I pray that God blesses the Christians in this country. Is that correct? Gentlemen? Ben's micless. Ben's micless. Here comes Owen. I don't see anything wrong with praying for your nation. I, I actually agree with you. I, I think that we're in judgment. But going back to a, or the, going back to Vanessa's and kind of tying it in here a little bit, uh, America's not in the Bible. So I always get a chuckle when they try to make America central to their belief system. The, the woman in Revelation was given the two wings of a great eagle. Isn't that America? And that's your pastor. <laughs> 
That hurts. I can't facepalm more. That hurts. <laughs> um, we should always be praying for our country. We should always be praying for God's kingdom, and we should always be praying for Christians. I, I think these are good things. I mean, we see even when Israel is in judgment, you know, how, how did how, what were they supposed to do? What should be the response? And that's, you know, ask for forgiveness and, and pray. But I think if we break it down into people groups, let's get away from the politics of the nation. There's always going to be a general blessing for any group of people, any culture that's following Christ. I mean, there's going to be natural fruit that comes out of that. So when people point back to, oh, we were founded as a Christian nation and everything was so great, there's a little bit of truth that things were great for our nation, but because their culture was Christ, right? And we can see as we fall away from Christ, our nation is becoming modern. So I'm not so wrapped around blessing the nation. Think of it more of groups and what is the culture. I think absolutely, though, you should be praying for the nation. Let me throw in a quick, I think it'll help us here. I think, and what I think probably is an irritant when you hear praying that God bless the nation is we're probably, we're thinking of blessing differently. Blessing means grant spiritual life and spiritual goodness. And so if we would pray, God grant this nation spiritual life and goodness, the only way God could do that would be to bring about genuine, the genuine salvation of many souls and bring about genuine repentance in the land. That's what blessing America would be. And so should we pray that? Yes. Should we pray, oh, God, just prosper us? Well, no, I don't think that that's... I mean, nothing wrong with praying for your, for your health and safety and well-being in general, but honestly, God's already told us that his blessing of prosperity is not going to be for this nation that's hating him in so many ways. So I think, I think the answer just comes to how do you define the word bless? If you define bless in a, in a biblical way, then yeah, we should pray it. If you define it in a selfish, uh, this worldly prosperity gospel way, no. So, all right, let, let me throw us another question here real quick. Um, Jason, we were asked, and I'm going to throw this at you, what is FIRE? Our church is, is connected with an organization called FIRE, and why are we a part of it? FIRE is the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Um, When we were beginning as a church, um, we had been through an experience where we had no oversight. We were an independent church for quite a few years. Um, The uh, direction the church went became very much one-person focused. Um, There was a plurality of elders, but it was not any, uh, there was no accountability, basically, is what it came down to. We were determined that wasn't going to happen again. So whenever we got ready to, uh, to incorporate as a church, we looked at a number of different organizations. Um, we looked at ARPCA, which is the Association of Re- Reformed Baptist Churches of America. Um, they, they were a little bit too controlling of the churches within the organization. We were looking for an organization that would give us an opportunity to be accountable, but not somebody that could come dictate to us how we had to do everything every week. Um, we weren't looking for a, uh, a group that would say, okay, you have to give to the host organization so much on a regular basis, all those kind of things. Um, FIRE was somebody that we lined up with theologically, um, and the FIRE group exercises a very loose, it's basically a loose association. Um, they have no ability to dictate to the church what we will do. However, they are very much available to assist us if we need assistance. 
Um, for instance, if we had a issue among the leadership of the church that we couldn't come to an agreement on, we could reach out to our fellow fire pastors, and they would come alongside and advise. Their advice wouldn't be binding, but it would be something that we would take into consideration in making decisions on which way we should go. So it gave us some accountability. Um, it also helps us to network with other churches. Um, whenever What we found is when you're an island and there's no accountability, you're truly an island, and you can go to some bad places that way. So this gives us the accountability that we're looking for. It gives us the support we're looking for, and it gives us the uh, the the networking and the fellowship with other like-minded churches that we can get, um, not only by attending the conferences, but just in personal conversation with other pastors and elders from, from like-minded churches. So that was the, that's what it's about, and that's the reason that we are here. That's good. I don't know the answer to that question without looking at the website, Vanessa. She asked how many churches are in fire. I would guess that the number is under 1,000. Um, and that, may, that will include churches and individual members all the way over, all around the world. Yes? When an abortion takes place, would the child that is being aborted go and spend eternity with God? Okay. Well, that's a heavy question. It's not broke. Mic drop. Uh, it happens. Okay, so the question is, will an aborted child be uh, in heaven with the Lord? Um, one of the, there are some questions in Scripture that we actually wish the Lord gave us more data than he does. And I don't want to give you an answer that goes well beyond Scripture. So the first thing I have to tell you is the Bible is not absolutely black and white on the death of infants as to the as to their souls. However, I think we can learn from principles in scripture some things that we definitely want to apply. So let's start here. God is holy and good. So whatever the answer to this question is, ultimately, is always going to reflect the goodness, the perfection, and the holiness of God. Whatever God does will always perfectly be right. If we don't start there, we will sit in judgment over anything that we think God will do next as we discuss it further. Secondly, no child will go to heaven because they are innocent. We are all infected with the sin of Adam. We are all stained with original sin. If we weren't all stained with original sin, a child couldn't die. Um, death for the human race came into the world because of Adam's representation of humanity when Adam rebelled against God. But then the question comes, I mean, what's our answer? Either all babies who die go to heaven, some babies who die go to heaven, or none. I think it's incredibly unlikely that the answer would be none because we see evidences in Scripture of infants' 
reacting to the Lord. Infant John the Baptist turned cartwheels in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus, which means the Holy Spirit of God is capable of enlivening to response even people that you and I would not believe capable of response. Therefore, we have a reason to believe that at least some children in the womb can be rescued because of Jesus. Does that no baby goes to heaven apart from Jesus? They all go to heaven if they go to heaven because of Jesus. So then now the question is, some or all? And that's where you'll find different theologians differing throughout history. Uh, I was reading the Canons of Dort yesterday. Nerd. Thank you. Uh, don't laugh at that. Uh, the Canons of Dort, they're, they're these. They're the articles that were written by men who were responding. Okay, they were responding to the people who were responding against Calvin. That's what the canons of Dort are. Because there were a bunch of people, the Arminians, followers of Jacob Arminius, who came out and said, we don't like these five things that Calvin teaches. And the people got together in the town of Dort and said, yeah, we like these five things. And they wrote stuff about it. In there, the, the, the people who were part of the canons, who wrote the canons of Dort said that the children of believers go to heaven, um, which very much fits kind of that Presbyterian model of the blessing of God and uh, on the children of believers that, um, you know, is there. Um, but I don't think that that's sufficient, personally. I think that we need to see further. So those are all some of the, the, the setting up the background. Now, I'm going to give you my spot, and then if you guys want to answer further, you can. I believe that actually the Lord is going to save all who die in infancy without any knowledge of the world, an aborted child as an example. Because I, I think the Bible talks about God judging people for the sins committed in the body. The Bible talks about that people who saw creation and had the revelation of God that proved that he was there, that those in Romans chapter 1 are without excuse. And I believe that the trajectory of that teaching would indicate that there's, there would be something beautifully gracious from God on those who were incapable of ever seeing those things or even taking action in the body. However, I can only stand on that as my best guess as to how the word works with the Lord. And I can't absolutely say that I'm absolutely sure, but what I do know is this, whatever God has done, at the end of the day, I'm going to say it was good and right. Now, that's me. I'm just one of the four of us here. Do any of you guys want to jump in and add something else? Um, I, you know, again, a couple of these guys have been through this with significant stuff, so good and been. Yeah. Um, what I can say with absolute certainty is that everyone that the Father has given the Son will be in eternity, and everyone that was not given will not be. And I know that God is right, just, perfect, and everything he does is glorious. So I'm not going to try to speculate particularly where all babies go, some babies or no babies. I just know that whatever the answer is, it is going to be good. And I'm, I, I can rest in that as someone that has lost children. I can rest knowing that whatever the outcome is good. How many times did your family go through this, Ben? Uh, four times. Okay. So th- this is not a guy talking to you who doesn't care or who's somehow emotionally disconnected from the topic. Uh, what about you guys? You guys want to add anything to this? 
Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm with Ben. And, you know, my wife and I, uh, we lost a child in the womb as well, and it's hard. Um, but that's, I mean, like I said, Ben sums it up. It's really the best thing we can do is we know that the Lord saves his children, and there's promises of that. And the best thing we can do is just pray that the Lord and, and, and we'll change our hearts to respond to whatever he does and whatever, uh, whatever he says is good. May we believe that. So, Jason? I feel the exact same way that Ben does. Um, I've never gone through that, so it's not something I'm comfortable speaking to. I'd much rather hear from somebody like Ben or Anthony that has, has dealt with that. But I believe the bottom line is those that uh, God has appointed, he is called, and he will save, regardless of where they are in their existence. So I, I leave it at that. And I pray that you're 100% right. <laughs> that, would be, that would be something I would take great comfort in, but I don't know. So I just trust what I do know, which is that all of those God calls to himself will be his, regardless. Right. The article with the argument that, that I make that just talks about some of the other things that give us a trajectory toward it, you could find that on Albert Moeller's website. He wrote on the topic. Do I think his article is perfect? No, but I think it's helpful. So um, you got to wrestle that through. Okay, let's go a little lightning round here. That was heavy. Uh, but it's important. It's important. Um, all right. If a husband and wife make a decision that the husband will stay home and raise the kids and the wife will work, is that a question of conscience or is it a sin issue? <laughs> and I asked the question so I don't have to answer it. <laughs> if a husband and wife together decide that she's going to work and he's going to stay home, is it a sin? That's the question, right? Yep. I think there's going to be a lot of personality in some of these answers. So I strongly believe that the marriage was designed for the man to protect, provide, and to lead. And in that, the woman's job is to come alongside and help him in what his mission is to do. I wish we lived in a world where every woman could be a stay-at-home mom. I really do. And I know there's exceptions. I know I come on the extreme end, but I, I do take issue with a husband that starts fulfilling what, in my mind, is the woman's role. I, I almost find it as an escape from what he's called to do, and I think it's the same way around the other way. With the woman leaving to go work, she's finding an escape from what she's called to do. That's my opinion. I forget which guy it was at Ligonier that someone said something and the guy responded. He had the accent. He goes, misogyny. <laughs> so, uh, I do come across very <laughs> misogynistic. That's why I said this is my opinion and I'm not well, judging others. I, I know there's a lot of things that like... Let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me speed this up. Would all of us agree that the basic biblical pattern is the man works and provides outside and the, and the wife is shaped best to provide for nurture and care inside the home. Would we agree that that's yes. Yes. The, the, the right pattern? I, I think we would all agree with that. Um, and I don't know that there's going to be any way that a man is going to work, at, stay at home, and the mom's going to work outside without there being discomfort. Um, because something will feel like that it's not exactly happening in accord with the best design. I don't think we can say that it's absolutely sin, and you didn't say it was no, absolutely I don't, sin. No, I don't think we can go that far as to call it a sin. Now, I mean, if you really dug into it, and about if you want to start comparing it to how 
as I see it, how God created the order and mm-hmm. you going against the order that God created, then we can start getting to, well, maybe, but at surface right. level, I'm not going to come out and be like, you sinner. Right. And, 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 and what, what are the life goals, right? Are we trying to do this for, for what reason? There's so many other things. Um, is it because she'll make so much more money than me that she should work out there? Well, then we might have questions. That's if same. it's because I have a particular physical disability that means I, I've got to... I've, I've got to do it. Yeah, and, and while uh, yeah. the mic's running over to John, I think a, a lot of the, those types of questions, you, I think you have to start to ask, why does the husband feel that ought to be the case? And, right. and then depending on how his response, then uh, I think that's kind of what, what Ben's hinting at is then depending on how he responds may classify it as a sin. So is it fair for us to say that we think the biblical pattern is best, husband plays the breadwinner role, wife plays the nurture role, plays the nurture role, and it could be sin to reverse those, but it may not be depending on particular circumstances and motivation? Yes. Can I ask a question related to that? <laughs> Go. How, how, how do you roll the example provided in Proverbs 31 for the virtuous woman uh-huh. and the work that she does? Because it's clear that she is industrious and that she sells and is making money. Right. So there's clearly no prohibition for women working. And in fact, our example of a virtuous woman includes her doing things that actually do provide for the home. And ben, go. ben really wants to answer it, and you've got his microphone, which is so awesome. Which is why I would not classify it as a sin. <laughs> yeah, and Anthony's a... Anthony. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of part of what I hinted at with, you know, the man has his mission, and part of his mission is to provide, protect, to lead, or whatever his goal is. But I clarified in there that the woman's role is to come alongside and help now how that help looks i mean it, it, look if you're if if you're struggling you're in a season of life where you can't be a sole breadwinner then absolutely a way that your wife can help is come alongside and maybe find something that makes cash on the side or like you know we don't make a lot of money but my wife is extremely industrious industrious in what she does i mean and the fact that she's able to stay home and fulfill that role that's a blessing on me to me. My wife blesses me by being that way and coming alongside and helping. And I bless her by going out and doing the thing that sucks, which is work, so that way she can do those things that bless me. I mean, right. it, it's, it's a great thing. But yeah, absolutely, the wife's role is to come alongside and help. And what does that look like? Well, you have to define that in your own, own marriage. Also, Proverbs 31, let's remember, the wife is clearly working from the overflow. It's not like she's a career woman with the husband saying, I'm not going to work. Uh, it, it, it is a, so we wouldn't want to make a one to, an apples to apples there, but the wife is caring for her family and from the extra that she's making at home, she's taking garments out and selling that she's also doing in, in the time that she has there. So it's, it, it, it seems to be a dual role family at that point. Uh, so, but anyway, we, we've got to move forward and I've got one I want us to get to. And that was, uh, because today, today's a communion Sunday, uh, and we talked about the regulative principle since Jesus used wine in the Last Supper, why don't we? Are we being disobedient? Uh, are we not being disobedient as a church by using a substitute? So, can I, can I give you a coy answer? Can I stop you? Ben, we got like four <laughs> minutes. Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, do I think we're being disobedient? No, um, I don't. Do I? Do I think we? I, and, and this is, I, I guarantee, we all did uh, this. This probably we have different opinion here. Um, I'll state my opinion. I think we should use wine, and I also I would make the argument I think we should use wine exclusively. Um, 
not grape juice. Um, but I, I would not go so far to say that we are being disobedient or sinful by not um, using wine in the Lord's Supper. Okay. Jason? No. <laughs> He's taking my rollover from last time. Yeah, that was the role Ben played last time, was to say I, no I, like I that. I heard that. No, um, no, I do not believe we're being disobedient. If I did, I wouldn't be here. Um, I, I think that, and I think if anybody does believe we're being disobedient, you should come to us. And Because if you believe that if your leadership is dis- being disobedient to the word, you should be challenging that. So I do not believe we're being disobedient. Um, I think there are probably, and I don't ask me to name them right now, but there's probably some other examples in the Bible that we look at and go, well, we don't do it the exact same way, right? We, we don't necessarily just baptize people in rivers or lakes, right? We, we'll find a, a pool or a tub to do it in. Not exactly the same way, but the spirit of the thing is the same, and so I'm comfortable with what we're doing. Can we start baptizing rivers and lakes? Love to. Yes. <laughs> can you can find oceans, a body of water for oceans? us to do it in? Hey, yeah. we got Lake Mead. I mean, you might come out a little toxic, but yeah. it's you'll, there. you'll come out with another person as well. You'll yeah. do if you go to Lake Mead. Uh, I'll just answer with no. I don't. I don't think we're in sin yeah. by any means. I mean, if you go back to when they started using grape juice, it was some good people that were just trying to do the right thing. Do I think we should use wine? Absolutely. That's that's where I come down on it. Right. Uh, I would part with Anthony as I wouldn't say exclusively. I think we should have another option for people that have a heart issue with it. But I think we should be doing communion with wine. Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, that's what that, I was that's saying. What, that's what Ben just said. That's what Ben just said. No, I think she's Who, which of us you asking? <laughs> that's a great business meeting conversation. Yes. Uh, but that's a no, no, she's not wrong. So the, I would say again, are we again are we being disobedient? I would agree with the guys that I don't think that we are, because uh, when the Lord's Supper is given, uh, our we're making inferences as to exactly what's being used based on our knowledge of the culture and the present situation. But there's not a particular command that says, thou shalt taketh this. The way they did wine, again, some people will argue that the way they did wine was different. For example, they used real wine, but probably diluted to the point of two-thirds water to one-third wine. So that's, uh, that's a thing. Is that how they did it at Lord's Supper? We don't even know whether it was diluted like that or not diluted like that. We don't know if it went through exactly the same type of fermentation process as it is today. I would argue that it probably does, that it probably did, but we're making a lot of cultural inferences at that point. I think if we were to say, because we don't have to do that, therefore we'll use something that's totally dissimilar, for example, Orange Fanta, then I would say, okay, I think now we've stepped to a place that's vastly different because now we've, we've gone from one thing to another type of thing. Um, but, you know, again, wine is fruit of the vine. The difference in wine and Welch's has a lot to do with time and fermentation. It's not like it's an absolutely different substance, which is why I don't think we're being disobedient to allow for grape juice to be used. Um, Similarly, what about the bread? Must the bread that is used in Lord's Supper be unleavened? Uh, we had this conversation once as elders, and it was really funny because they said yes, and I said, why? Because we are assuming, because it was Passover, that it was unleavened bread. We know that was culturally true, but there's not a biblical command that says it must be unleavened bread. We just did so based on principle based on the fact that for Israel and that particular nation, the presence of leaven in that particular moment indicated a removal of the presence of sin because of the stain of Egypt. However, 
We're the new covenant. We're the people of God. There's another time leaven is used in the Bible as an illustration, and it's used for the gospel permeating the entire world. Leaven's a good thing in a, in a parable of Jesus. So could we use leavened bread? If we did, I wouldn't judge somebody for it. Could we use unleavened bread? We currently do. I think it's, I think it's good. But I don't think that we have to get utterly meticulous on the elements there. With that said, my personal opinion, we would be better to offer both. I think that we would be wisest and and most gracious, number one, not to offer exclusively wine because there are people who really do have a sin problem with alcohol. And if we can avoid giving them any question of that, I don't think it's wrong for us to avoid giving them conscience questions there. There are people that have been raised to think that any touching of alcohol is always wrong all the time. I think that's an unbiblical unbiblical position, but I don't want to squeeze someone's conscience on it because the Bible requires me to squeeze someone's conscience on it. But with that said, if I really had my druthers, I think there would be, there's a place to say, okay, here's a plate. The cups on the outside are grape juice and the cups on the inside are real wine and you pick what's based on your conscience, I don't think that would hurt us. With this exception, if you allow yourselves, church, if we ever went this way, and I'm not saying we are going this way, I'm saying if we ever did, you heard the if, right? If we ever went this way, if any of you suddenly made communion a separating issue because you start defining yourself by which cup you take, then we're in sin. So you've got to be very careful not to allow there to be division, but unity in the celebration of Lord's Supper. So, but that said, we're almost done. What do you guys think? I mean, that, we're, we're a family here. How many of you would be pro-wine and communion? No. How many of you, how many of you, well, we don't have time. That's why I'm saying. So how many of you would be anti-wine and communion? Just, just your conscience, you wouldn't, you'd be not for it. Be honest, we won't judge you. A couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple. So um, that's, that's the struggle, right? Some people, that's just where you're raised with, with, with issues related either to past struggles, past experiences, past teaching. And I would not want to disrespect that for anything in the whole wide world. Let's pray, y'all. Guys, I hope you know you're loved. So, Father, bless your church. Thank you for letting us be here and letting us think these th- things through together. And now, Lord, help us to worship you well today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 15 minutes, guys.